What's up, guys? My name is Ernie Benoit, not Benoit, as my friend Dan just said. There's two T's at the end. Should make it easy to know that the T should make a sound. But Dan, that's okay. Love you anyways. Feel so connected. It's amazing. Hey, well, I'm excited to be here and excited to spend time with you guys and to look at the Word of God together. But I want to share a little bit about who I am so that I'm not just some random person talking to you. Uh, I am from Louisiana. That's where I met my wife, uh, Laura Benoit, if you've ever met her, which probably none of you have. But if you stalked her on social media, you'll quickly know that she is way out of my league and I have no business being around this woman. Uh, we have three kids, Jackson, who's our oldest, is seven. Ella, who's four, and Gracie, who's one. Uh, Jackson is what we call kind of like, he's our truth keeper and truth speaker and justice-hearted guy. Like everything he does is about drawing people to what is true. Uh, in fact, and he gets really frustrated when people break the rules. He's okay with breaking rules, but he's just not okay with you breaking the rules. You know, it's like, so here heard somebody driving by our house last night too fast. He just screamed out like, somebody's speeding. It's his kind of thing that he does. We're like, Jackson, you need to lay that down. Uh, but we just had the privilege of baptizing him about a week ago, two weeks ago. And that was one of the most amazing experiences ever to baptize my seven-year-old son. And that's the story for another day. But then we have Ella, four years old. Uh, we call her boss lady because everyone ends up working for her and they don't know why or how. You know, like we go on a walk, somebody's carrying her special sticks or special rocks, and then someone is physically carrying her. And we're like, what are you doing? She's like, dad, you know what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, unbelievable. And she's super cute, so I have a hard time saying no to her. And then Gracie's our bulldozer. Like she just bulldozes everything. It's like, it's my, like she is baby Jack-Jack. Like if you've seen The Incredibles, that's who she is. When she smiles, she giggles, she's the cutest thing ever, but she goes nuclear when she's upset. And I think it's hilarious, my wife, not so much. But we moved from Louisiana to Texas to Iowa, and now we're going to the city of Cincinnati. And most people outside this context look at us and be like, why on earth would you do that? Like, why would you take your kids out of school? Why would you move communities so much? Like, why would you ever, ever think about leaving your home where you're close to grandparents and, and your parents and you're close to family and you have all the comforts and your friends? Like, why on earth would somebody do that? Why would you do that? And tonight, the passage we're looking at is a great example of why me and Laura have decided to move our family to Cincinnati because the story that we're looking at is so impactful to us, so transformational to us that we decided we had to share it with as many people as possible. So I'm so thankful that Dan gave me this two chapters. We're going to be in John chapter 18 and chapter 19. You can open up to it right now as we're talking. But I'm so glad he gave me these because this will be the easiest sermon I've ever had to teach because it's the most amazing verses and chapters you're going to find in scripture. It is an incredible picture of what, what it means. And I think some of us need to hear this because for many of us, what Christianity is, is about keeping the rules. Or it's about community. Or it's about having good friends. Or it's about, you know, living more moral or whatever you've turned it into. No, 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 no. Everything is about what happened, that we're, what happens in these two chapters. Everything that we do as Christians is because of what God did in chapters 18 and 19. And it blows my mind, completely transformed and changed my life. And so I'm hoping that does it for some of you. But before we get into the word of God, before we read it, let's pray and let's begin to position our hearts in a way to receive the message of God in a way it changes our life. Because the one thing I would really hate is that if you were to hear me talk and we go, well, that's good. That was a really great lesson. And I learned a lot of new things, but it was never transformational in your life. 
that never changed a single thing about you, that you just went on going, oh, that's cool. No, no, no. I hope as we look at the passage tonight that we are brought to a place where we fall on our faces in our small groups, thanking God that this is the attitude and heart that he has towards us. This is what he has done for us. So let's pray. Jesus, I just ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts right now, that you would remove the distractions. God, I just ask that every phone, every device that's in that house that's listening to it besides the one playing this video would just not work at this moment. And we'd give our undivided attention to the word. And not only would we listen to it cognitively, but Lord, we'd open up our hearts, we'd open up our lives and we'd say, God, what do you have for us? What do you wanna share to us? What do you wanna speak to my heart and my life? What needs to change? What do I need to see you differently, Lord? That you would do work in us and that the word would do what it's supposed to do, which is transform form us from the inside out. God, please don't let this be a moment that we just look at the word of God and we take it for granted. These are your words and this is your story. Have an impact in our life tonight. Amen. We're starting at John 18, chapter 18, verse one. I'm gonna read through it. I'm gonna give us some commentary. And at the very end, I have three observations that we need to understand about it. And then one call to action, three points, one call to action, okay? We're not gonna read every verse. We're gonna kind of skip through it a bit, but we're gonna read a whole lot of them. So keep up. All right, let's go. I'm ADD. You can do it. I can do it. Let's stick with it, okay? Chapter, chapter 18, verse one says, when Jesus had spoken these words, what is he talking about? He just got out of the upper room discourse. Now he's walking to the garden. We're gonna hear that where he's going to be betrayed. And this is where the story picks up because as had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Hindron where, where there was a garden, which he, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus often went with his disciples to this place. He's bringing them there for a significant moment. In other gospels, we see it starts with prayer, but John cuts straight to the chase about what's gonna happen, points straight to the action, straight to the big deal. He says this, so Judas, having produced a band of soldiers, uh, procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? As we go a little bit further, guys, I think it's really important that you understand this, that what's about to happen to Jesus didn't happen to him, but it was part of his plan. That he walked into this moment knowing exactly what he was going to go through. No one took his life, Jesus gave it. Right here from the very beginning, he says Jesus knew exactly what was gonna happen to him and he approaches them. He says, whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Look at the power of Jesus. This is not someone whose life was taken from him. This is someone who is laying down his life on purpose. When he just says the word, I am, there's such power in that sentence. He, they just fall to the ground. And after they get up and they dust themselves off, Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? I don't know if Jesus being a little cheeky, being like, are you sure you know who I am? But I know for sure he's actually saying this is that even in this moment, because they say, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, you can see in verse eight why he said it, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
See, even in this moment, Jesus is protecting his men. Even in this moment, he's protecting humanity. He's thinking about not himself, but you, but me and them. See, in verse nine, it says this, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those of you you gave me. I have lost none, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Again, Jesus completely under control in this moment. As they come, Peter, hot-headed Peter, sees someone taking away his master, his leader, and he goes, no, 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 this isn't happening, not understanding what's going on. And Jesus, after healing the person, says, put it away. This is why I've come to be taken. So verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, the Jews arrested Jesus and bounded him. First, they led him to Aeneas, for he was the father-in-law of Cephas, the high priest that year. That's his son. His son the, is, the, is the high priest. And the high priest says who had, was the one that said who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Talking about Jesus, we should kill him so the people don't suffer. How right he was, but how wrong he was at the same time. Skip down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. They're trying to figure out if Jesus has some kind of secret teaching. They're trying to figure out, is there more to it? They're looking for a reason to kill him, but they can't find one. And Jesus has answered them. It's like, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying this, is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answers him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? And then they sent him bound to the high priest. And then verse 8, 28, skip down there as the story continues. Then they led Jesus from the house of Cephas, of Cephas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but would eat the Passover. So Pilate, who went outside to them said, what occasion do you bring, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They can't even come up for a reason to kill him. Even as crooked as they are, as this kangaroo court that they just sat Jesus in front of, even as they've pulled the fix and they're trying to pull one over on him, they can't even find a good lie that would even stick to Jesus. They just said, you have to trust me. He's a bad guy. We wouldn't bring him unless he was a bad guy. Pilate's answer to them because he sees that it's fishy and says this, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There is their plan. Their plan is to kill Jesus. And not because 
not just because he's the son of God, not because sin dwells in them and runs their lives, but also because they saw him as a political adversary that they needed to remove. Verse 33, so Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I think it's so amazing that Jesus answers this way because Jesus at this moment is trying to figure out what Pilate's saying. And I do believe that Jesus is like, do I, do I need to reveal to him who I am? Or what does he mean when I say that? How do I address his heart? How do I address where he is? And Pilate answers him smugly, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate still doesn't know why this man's on trial. And Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. What did Jesus just say to Pilate? Again and again and again, the same thing he's been saying over and over and over again. I'm not here to set up an earthly kingdom for the Jews. I'm here to set up an eternal kingdom for all of humanity. Pilate, of course, doesn't get it. And he says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered him, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate smugly responds, what is truth? You see Jesus pointing over and over and over and over again, not to the temporal thing, but the eternal thing. That's gonna play in a few minutes. But continuing in 39, the rest of 38 says this. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Look at this, guys. Look at the depravity of humanity. When God shows up and lives a sinless life, we choose a robber over him. Then Pilate took him away and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail the king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, behold the man. Then the chief priests and the officers said, saw him and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to the law, we ought to die. He ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be the son of God or people didn't see him as the son of God. It's written all over scripture. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He's like, well, who is this guy? He enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, 
Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know what Jesus just said to him? He said, you think you're in control, but I am. I am absolutely in control of what happened, what's happening. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not, a fr- you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat of a place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, it's Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. How amazing that when we turn away from God, we'll lie with anything. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of skulls in Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. And they crucified him with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So as they said to one another, let us not tear it, let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was the fulfillment of a scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothes, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary and his wife and the wife of Calapis and Mary of Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and disciples who, loved, who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing to the disciples. Then he said to the disciples, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. Again, isn't it amazing? In this moment, even as he's dying on the cross, he's pointing towards the protection of those he leads. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hisp branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, we're going to finish here in 37. We're going to talk for a few minutes. 
since it was the day of preparation and so that the body would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was the high day and the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might not, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once they came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true. And he knows that, what he, that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will take, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So you ask me why I moved my family to Cincinnati. Why do I go to a city, to a campus I've never been in, a place I have no affiliation or connection with outside of being part of the SALT Network and Warner Planet? Why? Because this story right here changed my life. Because this story is the reason why we would go to a place like that to share the goodness and greatness of our God, of who Jesus is and what he's done. See, there are three things we need to understand from the story. The first one is this, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. Meaning he is God in every way, shape or form that he put on flesh, that he dwelt amongst men and lived a sinless life. Over and over and over again, this passage, they can't even find something to point out him about. He's God. And that's what John is pointing hard so hard to is that this is the Messiah. This is where the answer to your problems are. That's why you keep seeing a fulfillment of prophecies over and over and over again. You notice in the passage as we read, it, it was like, this was written in the scriptures or this was written for this reason. Do you realize that Jesus fulfilled over 55 prophecies made about the coming Messiah? Many of them written over 500, 700 years before Jesus came. That is astronomically astonishing and not probable at all. This one guy who's a mathematician, he said, you know, with the odds that Jesus fulfilled even eight prophecies about being the Messiah and being from Nazareth, he said it's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 with 17, that's a one with 17 zeros behind it. We don't even, like, I don't know anybody has that, I don't even know what that number is. What's the name of that? Quadrillion billion? I don't know. It's ridiculous. But this is what I do know. He said this, if you were to have one, 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars, they would fill the state of Texas two feet high. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. See, we have to recognize who is the person in the story. He's not just a good guy that got a bad deal. It's the son of God that showed up completely in control of the situation and gave his life. And he gave his life, why? Because sin is a big deal. Sin matters to God. It's such a big deal to God that he died to pay the price for sin. And not his sin, but yours. It was the whole purpose of him coming. See, here's the reality. Romans 3.23 tells us this, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us this, that the wages of sin is death. And the scripture also tells us there'll be no forgiveness of sin unless there's a shedding of blood. What that means for us is that we are eternally separated from God because of our sin. 
because of our shortcomings, because we have waged war and rebellion against God. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, he who knew no sin, which was Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. See, what you don't see on this picture right here is that what was really happening too, spiritually, was the sins of humanity were placed on the shoulders of Jesus and God punished your sin and my sin on Jesus as if he had already done the sin. And now because of that, if we follow Jesus, he treats us as if we lived the life that Jesus lived. Perfect, sinless, and acceptable to the Father. Jesus didn't die because he was a failed revolutionary. He didn't die because people were radically against good ideas. He died for sin and that we would have relationship with him. Here's the problem. Many of us in this room don't think our sin is that big of a deal. You think about your sin, the things that you regularly do in the same way that you think about how much time you spent, how much screen time you put on your iPhone. Like, yeah, you put limits on it. We're like, oh, ignore. I'll do better next time. I'll just try a little bit harder next time. Sin's a big deal. Guys, Jesus didn't die just to save you from the consequence of sin, of being away from him. But he died so he, you would be free from sin, which didn't change you. and corrupts you and disforms you. See, we've been deformed by sin. When God Almighty shows up in the flesh, never sins, meaning not only did he not do all the things he wasn't supposed to do, but he did all the things he ought to do too. What do we do? We kill him. What do we do? We say, no, give us the criminal, not him. Not the guy that heals people, not the guy that feeds people, not the guy that tells us the truth about God. We say, kill him. We're not that different. See, the reality is we think we're not that bad, but guess what, guys? In this story, <laughs> we're the ones screaming, crucify him. That's me. We're saying, get your life out of my life. Get your standards away from me. Let me live the way that I want to live. You want this? What's the most amazing thing about this is that chapter 20, chapter 19, isn't the end of the story. There's two more chapters. And some of you need to hear that tonight. That the end of your story is not that you're condemned in sin and dead in sin, but there's a greater story of mine. All of this needs to be seen within the third point is that Jesus loves you and his love for you is great. In fact, in John 3, 16, Jesus said this, even speaking about this moment, for God loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whomever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love that Jesus puts so loved the world. You ever been so in love with someone? Like you're just googly-eyed about it. Like you're so in love. Like, no, I just love her so much. It's like, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. You know, no, you hang up. Guys, that's the love that God has for his creation, for humanity, for me and you. And not because we're so great. 
When he found us, we were enchained. We were naked. We were being abused by sin and abusing others in sin. And God didn't run from us, but he ran to us. See, this is how God's love is different. As Romans 5, 6, and 8 tells us this, for while we were yet still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let me explain verse seven for a second because it's really important you understand that. He says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. A righteous person was a person that did all the things they ought not, you know, they didn't do all the things they ought not to do. Being a good person was better than being a righteous person because a good person also did things they ought to do. And what Paul tells us in Romans 5 is, hey, people will die for a really, really good person, maybe. But Jesus didn't die for us because we were really good. He died for us when we were enemies of him. See, this passage right here, the story of the cross transformed my life. I remember when I was 12 years old, sitting at a camp, knew who Jesus was, but was not walking in a relationship with him. And the guy was talking about this exact story and then read another piece from another gospel where they're taunting Jesus on the cross, saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, come on down, save yourself. Where's your angels? And he looks up at heaven and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Guys, no one loves me like that. No one loves you like that. And the moment I heard that, the moment I understood that I was the one yelling and mocking Jesus, that's who I was. And that's how he responded to me. I knew whatever, he loved me that much. Whatever plan he had for my life was better than any plan I could have for my own. So here's the call to action. Fall on your face and repent and celebrate and receive the mercy of God. Jesus did not go through all of this so that he would just be a part of your life, a cool thing in your life. He did all of this so that he would be your king and savior. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. He's looking for sons and daughters that go into and be a part of the family business, which is sharing the gospel. But right now in this moment, I think the best thing we can do is just praise Jesus and thank God for him. See, some of you that are listening to this, church for you, salt for you, what it's been about is making friends and having good community and learning a little bit about God. This is your moment right now to really see what it's about. It's about that Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, that he paid the price for sin that you couldn't pay. This is a moment where you can cry out to him and say, God, I see who you are now. I devote my life to you. If you love me like that, you love me more than, better than anyone else will ever love me. I wanna trust you and follow you as my king and my savior. Some of you in this room right now, some of you watching this right now, you know Jesus, but you've been more familiar than in the family. It's time for you to follow him as your king and as your savior. Let me pray.
Jesus, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you so much for what you've done here, the transformational power of the, of the cross and what it meant, Lord. And I thank you that the story doesn't end here. I'm so excited for him to celebrate chapter 20 and 21 next week to see how not only did you destroy sin, but you overcame it. And now we can overcome it with you being victorious, victorious with you over sin. That we could be in right relationship, that dead things can come alive. But Lord, thank you that when you say you love us, Lord, you say this much, that you stretched out your hands, God, and you allowed them to be pierced, that you stretched out your back and it was ripped to ribbons by a whip, that you suffocated a horrible death on the cross, just as a physical picture of what spiritually was happening as God the Father poured out his wrath on sin and you were separated from the Father for the first time. Lord, you did that. So Lord, let us claim no fame or no right to say we've done any of this, but let us fall on our face in gratefulness and thankfulness for who you are and what you've done. Amen.